0: I wonder if I might hunt for sherds in your garden. Sherds? Well, I have an archaeological interest. I'm a student of that, in my own time. Old things generally.
1: You're listening to Sherds Podcast, a journey through the outskirts of literature. It all began one beautiful morning. A clear daybreak it was. The harmattan haze had retreated home. The creatures of the forest were still asleep. Those of the backyard were feeding on the day's providence. And the birds were singing praises of their maker. A beatific breeze rustled the dark leaves of the forest. Deep, dark and shimmering leaves. The sun rose from the east in God's own splendor spread its light into the world, and the sons of men began their daily perambulations. As for me, I sat in my favourite chair, settled into it with voluptuous contentment, enjoying my very existence. Not long after I was seated, an old man came up to me and greeted me. I returned him courtesy for courtesy. Observing what appeared to be a desire to stay, I offered him a chair and turned it to face me. Once seated, we began to exchange pleasantries and share jokes like old acquaintances. But it was not very long after when I heard the man sigh deeply as one whose mind was troubled by a heavy thought. Even as I began to consider asking him the cause, he began himself to speak thus. Take up your pen and paper, and write down the story which I will now tell. Do not delay it till another day, lest the benefit of it pass you over. I would not myself have come to you today, but I am concerned about the future, and there is this fear that I may die unexpectedly, and my story die with me. But if I pass it on to you now, and you take it all down diligently, even when the day comes that I must meet my maker, the world will not forget me. That was a passage from the opening of Dio Fagunwa's Forest of a Thousand Demons, which was first published in 1938. It marks the first full length novel published in Yoruba and has since become a classic work of African literature. The delightfully rich translation is by the Nobel laureate Wale Shoinka and is published by City Lights Books. The book concerns the life of a brave hunter, Akara Ogun whose encounters with spirits, bog-trolls, and other supernatural creatures are related orally with great flair for an enraptured audience which grows bigger with each night's telling, and an author who takes down the hunter's words that they might provide a record of his days upon this earth. The book stands at a crossroads between oral and written culture, between Christianity and traditional Yoruba beliefs and takes place in a world in which the boundary between the natural and the supernatural is a distinctly porous one. To open its covers is to witness this complex metamorphosis taking place. Join us over the next hour while we give our thoughts and impressions of this deeply original classic of African literature. We hope you enjoy our conversation. So welcome to Sherds Podcast. My name's Sam Pullum. I'm here with Rob Prowse. How are you doing, Rob?
2: Yeah, really good as ever, Sam.
1: Just back from your expedition in the Spanish mountains.
2: Yeah, indeed. So now sitting in lovely sunshine in Norfolk countryside. So yeah, very, very well.
1: Perfect. Today we're talking about D.O. Fagunois' Forest of a Thousand Demons, which was published in 1938 in Yoruba and is actually the first novel uh, or is generally recognized as the first novel to be published in that language which is pretty amazing I think and the translation comes from a much more famous writer perhaps at least uh, in the English-speaking world Wale Shoyinka who's obviously a Nobel laureate I'm just wondering Rob how you how you found this one to read a very interesting book I think
2: Yeah, really, really interesting. Yeah, like massively enjoyed reading it. I don't know, it's it's so hard to categorise. There's not really like anything else I've really read. And it, I don't know, it felt like three or four different books in one almost. Constantly took me by surprise. Like The end itself was very unexpected. And rereading it, there are certain bits that are signposted, but forget. I don't know quite how much happens and really quite how strange it is. I really felt there was a a strangeness in quite how straight the delivery is Mm. of every element of it. The book itself never really misses a beat introducing you to mythical creatures or um, kind of exploits of the various characters and for that reason it makes it really really easy to read but also incredibly strange in the best possible way. So yeah really really enjoyed what were your initial impressions?
1: Yeah much the same I mean I really... Really enjoyed it, but like you, probably it's it's quite unlike anything that I, I'm accustomed to reading, really. I think probably that's to do with not just the sort of folkloric elements from a, a culture that I'm not particularly familiar with, but there's a sort of real, like a true unpredictability to the narrative. Not just in terms of twists and turns of the plot. You know, you could find that it maybe in any Western picaresque, but rather in the sense that anything at all could could happen. That there's n- very little in the book that seems static or, or fixed. Not even the bodies of the characters, you know, which seem just as fluid as the, as the narrative. They sort of transform and metamorphose. And there are no narrative rules established. No fixed sense of morality at least in the, the first part of the novel and, and, and perhaps not even a real sense of a motivation in the main character which we, which we understand you know that you're sort of given to, to expect from reading perhaps European novels but I found that the effect of all of that is along with a certain disorientation maybe a kind of freedom that I found very seductive as a, as a reader. Do you know what I mean about that instability, Rob? That sort of yeah, fluidity?
2: definitely. And I think that's like a really, really fantastic way of putting it, the fluidity of every element, both structural and in terms of the the subject matter of the, the narrative. And yeah, I mean, I, I yeah, I think you've put it perfectly, that it's something that is simultaneously very almost unsettling because it, it just doesn't conform to any expectation going into starting the book I don't know it's a, I, I keep saying that it's easy to read and it makes it sound like um you know it's a kind of airport novel or something which <laughs> clearly, <laughs> clearly it isn't it's really really joyful to uh, to to read I mean it's certainly not a fairy tale but there is something of the there's a, a kind of real joyfulness in the telling of the story comes through that has a kind of a certain element of that i would say
1: there's an exuberance to it isn't there mm. which might be just as much to do with the translation as well i think i mean we can we will talk about that later i expect it does really push you along i think i must admit at a certain point towards the end where we get a kind of sententious moralizing from one of the characters that that did drop off a little bit for me and I found that a bit more difficult to just keep keep reading and enjoying but for the first two thirds of the book I was very much on board and, and enjoying it tremendously.
2: Yeah 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 yeah, absolutely and I think that even you know revisiting that I realised that there are these stories within stories within that section mm. that even in that bit and I absolutely agree it does the pace slightly slows a little and I think um, yeah for me personally it definitely became slightly less enjoyable but Even within that point when uh, the tone becomes far more moralistic, you do get this, uh, just a weirdness of storytelling kind of bursting at the seams. Then it kind of escapes into it. You know, a story of a super strong child who has the entire village under his thumb. Yeah, just terrorises the village. Yeah, terrorises the village. And then it becomes an explanation of why all the animals in the world live in a different place, and then that is somehow then brought back into this thing, of saying like, and this is why you should bring up your children properly. Yeah, yeah. it's just absolutely brilliant. But um, yeah, it feel, there's a an exuberance definitely that it never really stays under wraps. It just tries to have like a yeah definite moral message, but um, I think even at that point, it never quite becomes that alone. Can't quite keep its exuberance under wraps. I
1: think. I just I just found it much more enjoyable when it was when it seemed free of morality altogether mm. and seemed to be occupying a completely different space I was reminded, you know, I was listening to that I think I was telling you Rob even I was listening to an interview with Marlon James who's just published this the first part of a, of a huge fantasy fantasy novel have you heard about that?
2: Uh, only, th- only from you um, talking to me about it I hadn't heard about it before
1: called Black Leopard, Red Wolf and I think he drew on a lot of African folklore and mythology and and epics in, you know to inform it, and that's precisely what he was talking about that that he had to sort of unlearn this very canonical European morality that is the sort of gravitational center of of so much of our literature mm. and trying to try and apply something that was free of all that it strikes me that this book is at its most exuberant when it when it isn't moralizing you know when it isn't trying to teach you something but I mean it could be argued that it's doing that in a different way all the way through perhaps
2: yeah I think there are there are certainly glimpses of it and even you know the beginning of the text is um, is very explicit in the fact that this is a text to be interpreted but yet I think there's without a doubt this it's almost like. Fagunwe can't quite, it, like, almost loses himself in the, in the narrative. Mm. As a reader, it feels like the author is having a lot of fun as well as... There's a... These two strands, it's never entirely sure how much one can exist without the other, but also really necessarily how well they knit together. I do think that there are at least signposts in earlier sections of the book where certainly this is um, a lesson that is trying to be taught yeah Uh, and there's an argument in um, this paper that we both read that said actually the structure of the book does suggest the entire thing can be read as an argument for a kind of like movement towards adulthood and towards wisdom and how to kind of use that wisdom
1: i should say that article is hola george's essay compound of spells the predicament of dio faginois which is really helpful for us both i think
2: yeah incredibly useful i think for getting to grips with this beyond the kind of initial read i mean we'll get onto the the issue of morality later on and it's kind of i guess unavoidable because of what happens in the kind of third section of the of the novel but yeah i would agree that definitely the the points where it's sort of moral bedlam are yeah. <laughs> slightly more more interesting
1: yeah it's definitely a lot of fun I think however you come to it so Rob I understand you looked into Dio Faganois life a little bit and have a have some information about that
2: yeah 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 absolutely so I've got some some stuff drawn from the usual sources and also some things that maybe this is quite applicable for we're going to be talking later about kind of oral histories there seems to be some stuff about his life which is crops up again and again in first-hand and second-hand descriptions from various sources and it's really interesting but I'm harder to confirm the historical accuracy so i'll point those out when we get to okay that. but but for sure we know that he was born in and apologies for pronunciation because i have no idea but okay igbo nigeria and he's one of the yoruba people i've read differing accounts about whether his parents were christian or whether they were members of yoruba religion uh the most authentic Authoritative source seems to suggest that his father and mother were both converts to Christian religion, but I can't confirm that for sure. Certainly, Fagunwa himself converted to Christianity or was brought up a Christian, and at the point when this book is written, is, is certainly a Christian. He went to school at what is uh, described as famous St Andrew's College, and it, where he later became a headmaster for 10 years, I think. And it was whilst he was a teacher there in 1938 he entered the book we're looking at today or manuscript for the book we're looking at today into a literary contest hosted by the Nigerian education ministry it won the prize and he was then able to get it published by a small bookstore and it initially had a very small publication run now to the slightly (laughs) unconfirmed but often repeated stories and there's this which i really really love that apparently the book itself was written in the bush or in the in the woods itself that he took i don't know if you came across this piece no of information no there, i was curious took desk and chairs into the woods and and that's where he wrote this book which i mean makes total sense oh, so. i want <laughs> um, to believe Maccarelli, that yeah 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 and, and as i say it's, i i've I've come across this piece of information twice. Once in a really interesting interview with uh, someone who worked as his secretary for a very long time, first in civil service and then when he was working for Heinemann, I think. But yeah, the story goes that he cut a path into the bush and beneath an enormous tree set up his writing desk, and for food he would walk back out of the bush to a woman who was selling yams from a kiosk and she knew that the, you know, there was no settlement or anything in the bush, and so began to su- suspect that Fagunwa himself wasn't human and was some kind of mysterious being dwelling, <laughs> dwelling in the in the forest. Wow,
1: that is defi- That's definitely true, Rob.
2: <laughs> yeah, definitely. And so she then contacted some hunters who were, she asked to go to the into the bush to to search for. Fagunwa who she thought was some sort of forest demon. And the secretary says that God saved Fagunwa because when the hunters went to find him in the forest, he'd gone out to buy yam. And then they found him and stopped him and he told them that he was the headmaster of the school and they were like, oh, "Okay, yeah, that's fine." <laughs> um and so he, you know, they said, "What are you doing?" and he said, "I'm writing a book." In the in the bush, and they didn't believe him. So he took them into the uh, into the bush and showed them his writing desk and his chairs. And they said, "Okay, that was fine."
1: That's fantastic.
2: <laughs> and so this is the possibly untrue story about the writing desk, <laughs> but it's a really fantastic one. Oh, I uh, love that. And I feel like even if it's untrue, the um, the story fits with the story and so yes as you said incredibly incredibly influential writing in the Yoruba language and kind of seen as the forefather of um, a huge flourishing of writing in Yoruba but also writing in a lot of African languages. It just a name that comes up again and again. Writes a lot of other books after this uh, which kind of I guess focus on a lot of similar themes. One comment I read talked about quite how often the forest comes up in j- even just the titles of the books and I think as someone that has grown up in rural area very steeped in these Yoruba traditions which are very linked to specifically the forest. Yeah he continues to write continues to work and then also has a very very strange death of which it seems once again that there's not a definitive account of exactly how this happens that we know for sure that he drowns. The version that is on Wikipedia (laughs) suggests that he Falls in to a river whilst walking past it, and and is you know drowned. The account from his secretary, however, says that he was an incredibly keen swimmer, and he is kind of unclear whether he goes in on purpose or not. No one really knows, mm. but that he is wearing very heavy clothing and so had he not been wearing that he could have easily swum out but then is drowned by the fact that he's weighted down by this incredibly heavy clothing and there's all sorts of very strange information in that particular account talking about how when they find the body it's completely untouched and that perhaps there is some spiritual nature to his death that he's pulled under by some specific water spirit or something else but again a very very strange death and somehow equally in keeping with this uh, kind of folkloric nature of his life.
1: I thought maybe before we get onto the to the book itself in a bit more detail, maybe we could just talk about the translation a little bit. Obviously, as I said before, you know, it's a very well-known writer who who translates it, Wale Shainka And he translates the book in 1968 while he's a political prisoner for his activities during the Nigerian Civil War. I was listening to an interview with him in which he talks about growing up in Yoruba culture and his education and, and actually about translating this book. I'll include a little clip of it here. I, I don't know if you watched it, Rob
2: i actually didn't i i completely forgot which is um yeah not so useful
1: <laughs> <laughs> i mean it's, it's uh it's only a little moment but he talks about the oral culture and the sort of veneration of language the sound of language and and um proverbs and metaphor and so on um in europe culture so
3: You said somewhere that your family was a family of word spinners in the in the culture. What, what does that mean? Is that uh, word spinners in the Yoruba sense in, in, in Nigeria?
0: Mm-hmm. In the Yoruba sense. I come from um, a culture. Yeah, not just mine alone in Nigeria. You have the Igbo also, which we deal, uh, speak a lot in metaphors, use proverbs quite a lot. Uh, and the very music of language is one which fascinates and is exploited by writers, writers. Uh, Oral historians, poets, etc., etc.
3: Mm-hmm. And so, you're growing up l- l- hearing fairy tales or or, or 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 folklore from your parents or mm-hmm. from f- in school. How does it work?
0: Um, I grew up, uh, yes, uh, hearing folk tales and also history vignettes from history, uh, learning about uh, the heroes of society. You know, the historical figures. It was a uh, uh, it was an environment of legends as well as myth.
3: And how does that coexist with the colonial environment that Nigeria was in at that time? Oh, there was no
0: contradiction at all. Very often, the the myths just took on new clothes, uh, sort of Christian uh, clothes, and in some parts of the uh, the same society, um, Islamic uh, uh, clothing. But basically. Uh, The archetypes I think we find are pretty much the same in all cultures.
3: And in in school proper, were you learning English literature or African literature or both? Or how did that kind of colonial bifurcated mindset or education work when you were a a young man? first of all,
0: we grew up being taught in Yoruba. And being taught in Yoruba meant that you read uh, Yoruba history, you read Yoruba writers. I grew up, in fact, later on to translate one of the great classics. Of Yoruba literature into English to make what was it accessible. That? Uh, it's Obujọ dẹnìnú igbùrùmẹle, which are translated as "The Forest of a Thousand Demons."
1: Mm-hmm. One thing we should say perhaps, is that the, the book, by his own admission, is quite freely translated, I think. In fact, even the title itself, if we render it literally, is The Brave Hunter in the Forest of 400 Spirits, or Deities. And the fact that Shoinka has changed even the number within it strongly suggests to me that sound, and maybe particularly resonance, is just as important perhaps more important than fidelity. You know, it's a sort of, it's a grander number, but we also hear maybe an echo of the thousand and one nights, which is suggestive of its, maybe it's episodic nature or its connection to fairy tales and myths. And uh, Shoyinka even, I think, makes makes reference to that. He mentions the number of a thousand and one as well. Yeah, in the introduction, he says, the pattern of choices begins quite early, right from the title, in fact is Male to be rendered literally as 400 deities rather than in the sound and sense of a thousand or a thousand and one. And he goes on to tell how he's been attacked by uh, another critic for a rather liberal translation of a certain phrase, but continues and says that this is actually also the case for Fagunwa that, that he's more interested in sound and the connection between sound and sense. So he says, Fagunwa's concern is to convey the vivid sense of event, and a translator must select equivalents for mere auxiliaries where these serve the essential purpose better than the precise original. In what I mentally refer to as the enthusiastic passages of his writing, the essence of Fagunois is the fusion of sound and action. And I really felt that that approach is so evident. You know, the language really leaps off the page. It's it's so vibrant, I think. Uh, Did you feel the same, Rob?
2: Yeah, 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 definitely. And I must say, actually, I think this translator's note is really quite beautiful. Yeah, and I, it makes me more than almost any kind of translator's note or or kind of description of translation. It it makes me quite sad that it's not possible for me to read it in the original. Yeah, um, because it makes it it makes it sound almost. I mean, even actually, it makes it sound magical. Basically, is what I want to say. And it actually, it feels like this is like this extra layer of this kind of folkloric mythical nature of of the book itself is going on. Even the language has some kind of, like, mythical and inaccessible properties.
3: Yeah. Um,
2: And I think that just adds to this other layer you know, there's there's these things that are going on in the book itself where these kind of layers of mediation where you know there's there's something amazing going on, but you're always at one or two removes and um you're trying to get to it. And then this just adds this other fantastic layer to it, which is which is really amazing.
1: In the names in particular, you get the sense that he's you know, he's translated some as as poetically as possible. Mm. Like um I seem to remember a name, Voice of Flavors and Obviously, the protagonist's name, compound of spells, is it's, it's just—they're both so just so evocative. I think it's notable that some have remained and some have been translated into some kind of Gnostic phrases like that. And you wonder how much is sort of lurking beyond your your reach as a reader. Yeah. But yeah that's that's a brilliant way to describe it Rob a magical process it really does feel like that but i feel like maybe to bring us closer to to something sort of alien he's chosen quite a specific mode of expression i think there's a kind of archaic lilt to the to the syntax and even in the choice of vocabulary i think you know it's never the fireplace it's the hearth the word Cutlass is used rather than machete, for instance. I mean, as I understand it, that word cutlass is used in certain forms of English, I think particularly in the the Caribbean rather than machete, but it nevertheless has this sort of archaic, naval swashbuckling air to it. Um, There are even invented words in here. I noticed this one, flirreting. I'll just read it in context, along with this word cutlass, actually. It was my cutlass which broke into one half flirting off while he wasn't dented one bit. You know, the point is we don't need to know that word. We don't even need to know that it doesn't really exist in order to understand it. It just simply rings true at that moment as the sound of a blade you know, scraping and bouncing off a hard surface or a metal object or something. And there are also words that are repurposed, that are um, transformed. You know, we 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 find the word protuberant used as a verb instead of an adjective he says, my belly protuberated most roundly, which I really like that. I really <laughs> like that phrase. It's just little things like that. I noticed also there's a, quite a sparing use of continuous tenses, which often lends this sort of old, old world flavor to, to English.
2: And I think it also adds a certain, because it's quite easy, I think, to lose yourself or lose the idea that this is an oral history being transcribed and I think that kind of pulls you back into that because we're you know we're told this is a man uh this is the story of a man who believes himself to be close to death and this yeah definitely feels like a, a story told at the hearth side of um I mean the very fact that it's it's uh, rendered as a hunter's saga as well I suppose so, so yeah no definitely definitely and I also really I think this is something spoken about in the translation as well but um I really enjoyed the points where the words become or even some of these made-up words or repurposed words are kind of like uncannily similar so the names especially for these kind of non-human entities the gomids or homids or I'm not entirely sure how you're meant to pronounce that but yeah and the the noms and the dewilds they're all close enough to some words which would be the the kind of right word perhaps but they're just missing a, a, a vowel or missing you know some ending and it becomes something different and you you kind of wonder knowing if it's in translation whether this is a you know is this something direct or is this something that is it some archaic term for the same thing that you don't know and I quite like that uncertainty and I think yeah it seems it seems very deliberate so yeah I would definitely agree that the the language really really jumps out at you and um we say this in it every time I guess, that we we come to a translation that we feel we really enjoy, but uh, having no ability to read the original, it does certainly feel like something that's a really, really good translation. Um, Oh, it does. Certainly a very joyous translation, and the book itself seems very joyous in a lot of ways, so in that sense it really rings true somehow
1: just in reference to that word gomid i looked that up and i couldn't find any other reference to it at all other than this this particular book i don't know if you found the, the same
2: Yeah, yeah 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 and i think i read I mean, perhaps it wasn't in the translation translator's introduction, in fact, but I know he s- talks about deliberately not substitute the Yoruba words for things like demons, devils or gods, because they had this very specific resonance. And then, yeah, in this, in so- somewhere else, and I forget where, uh, it may have even been the article that we mentioned earlier in the podcast, that it was like a very deliberate act to of choose these words that seemed almost familiar but weren't really so somewhere half a halfway house between completely making up a word in some cases or you know very slightly changing an existing word which I guess is something that's you know just slightly changing the spelling or or, yeah removing a character is maybe something quite common in kind of fantasy literature in general yeah so yeah absolutely fantasy.
1: i mean in fact it really reminds me of gene wolf's book of the new sun i mean not that this text reminds me of that but this idea this this use of language do you know that book no 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 um, well gene wolf Actually, it was announced a few days ago that he'd, he'd died. It and was, I it was very sad to hear that because he's someone I'd, I'd grown up reading and uh, he'd at one point been a real favourite of mine. He writes a sort of introduction to his book, fantasy epic and it's a sort of translator's note referring to translation from a language that has not yet come into being but the curious thing about the vocabulary in that book is that every single word he chooses is an existing word an existing word in english or sometimes in, in latin or spanish or other languages but he chooses them specifically for their sound to capture something close to what he wants to communicate so when you when you look up their meaning sometimes there's an equivalence there uh, and other times it's completely unrelated but something about it is, yeah, uh, I'll use that term again Rob, sub-semantic resonance uh, <laughs> which might even be my own coinage uh, <laughs> <laughs> is very, very effective I think and maybe something similar is going on here This was the third day of my sojourn in the forest of Irunmala. I ate, filled up properly so that my belly protuberated most roundly. I reached for my gun, primed it diligently, seized my hunting bag, slung it over my shoulder and so into the forest. It grieves me to admit that I had out-eaten remembrance of those charms which I should have taken with me. I left them at the foot of the palm and took nothing but the shot for my gun and my cutlass. I had not walked very far before I began to encounter game, but they would not be patient and persisted in running pointlessly about, and just when an opportunity presented itself for a shot, I heard a rumble as of six hefty men approaching. Indeed, it was no less a monster than the sixteen eyed de Wilde, Often had I listened to hunters recount tales of him. Agbako, that is his name. When I set eyes on him, I was, unless I lie in this matter, smitten with terror. He wore a cap of iron, a coat of brass, and on his loins were leather shorts. His knees right down to his feet appeared to be palm leaves. From his navel to the bulge of his buttocks, metal network. And there was no creature on earth which had not found a home in this netting, which even embraced a live snake among its links, darting out its tongue as Agbakor trod the earth. His head was long and large, the sixteen eyes being arranged around the base of his head, and there was no living man who could stare into those eyes without trembling. They rolled endlessly round like the face of a clock. His head was matted with hair, black as the hearth, and very long, often swishing his hips as he swung his legs. Agbakor held two clubs in his hand and three swords reposed in his sheath. A very evil spirit was Agbakor. The style of this book is very curious. You know I think you you sort of hinted towards it earlier that it's at once seems like it's something that should be read aloud but which is also self-consciously literary and it's quite a strange combination but a very effective one. It's curious that the text seems to take place on the cusp of oral and written forms quite explicitly. You know, in in the, the frame narrative, we're given to understand that the narrator's voice is mediated through this author. In the frame narrative, Akara Ogun implores this writer to take down his tale so that when the day comes that he he must die, the world won't forget him. And in that article, we both read the predicament of Dio Fagunwa. The point is made, which I thought was really curious, that the hunter, Akara Ogun, the, the protagonist, Privileges, as he says, print over the transience of orality, and therefore implies that stepping up to modernity requires the oral to become written. I thought it was interesting that in in this narrative device, in in the construction of the the story, there is something of its concerns already contained. We might go on to think about the ways in which the hunter's tale could could reflect perhaps the move away from traditional religions towards Christianity and also towards modernity somehow Um, and and that's sort of reflected in the very way that the story is built that passage from oral to written culture but you were saying to me you don't think it's that simple I mean I I don't think it is either but I was curious about why
2: well yeah I mean I think there's definitely something built in from the start that for me makes it a little bit harder to say. That definitely this is about that transition, and that there is that hierarchy there. I mean, I think it really feels like clearly there's a, there's a debt here to oral storytelling traditions, and there's a, a question inset into how you set that down in a book. And I find it fascinating that the very beginning of it begins almost like with an instruction of how how to read. Yeah. Which, I, which is, is, is really incredible, because I think it then becomes somehow slightly performative, which is far more interesting than, you know, I've certainly never read a, a book that begins saying, you know, before we get this story started, here's how you read <laughs>
1: do you want to read? Do you want to read that little passage, Rob?
2: Yeah, OK. So it says, The story which follows is a veritable agadigbo. It is I who will drum it, and you, the wise heads, who will interpret it. Our elders have a favourite proverb. Are you not dying to ask me how it goes? They tell it thus, when our masquerade dances well, our heads swell and do a spin. Forgive my forwardness, it is a proverb which speaks, for I do not want you to dance to my drumming as a mosquito to the deep bembe drums, its legs twitching haphazardly at loggerheads with the drums. Dance, my friends, in harmony, with joy and laughter, that your audience may wring your brows with coins and pave your path with clothing, that men may prostrate before you and women courtesy in sheer pleasure at your dancing. But for a start, if you want this dance to be a success, here are two things I must request of you. Firstly, whenever a character in my story speaks in his own person, you must put yourself in his place and speak as if you were that very man. And when the other replies, you must relate the story to yourselves as if you, sitting down, had been addressed and now respond to the first speaker. And then it goes on, and I think this is kind of important as well, that it says, in addition, as men of discerning, and this is the second task you must perform. You will yourselves extract various wisdoms from the story as you follow its progress. Yeah, it's really, it's really beautiful, and obviously it's really worth saying here that this is literally, you know, that's, that's the beginning of the book. It starts there, and it's such an incredible way to talk about the, the act of reading a, a, a story. It becomes this, this like very communal act, and quite an amazing way, like weirdly for me anyway really links you with like everyone that might have read this before yeah and it's i mean beautiful i think it's definitely definitely the word for it but it also holds within it these two um juxtaposing or these two parallel demands of you as a reader which it wants you to be incomparably subjective to you know completely immerse your subjectivity in the book and and to see every single character's point of view as your own which is uh you know, I sort of almost as like an experiment really tried to do that when I was making notes. And it mm. like, it, like it's such a difficult task to think. Are you also being asked with the kind of fantastical creatures that crop up in the book? Are you asked to be in their place as well? I I think you are by the sounds of this um but it's an amazing thing to be asked to do but anyway so and then so you have this like a deep immersion within it but then it says as men of discerning uh you will extract various wisdoms from the story (laughs) so then it's asking to be incredibly objective and to take this huge step back and to see it in one or two or three steps remove and to to see the kind of various lessons that in some places are very obvious in some places might be quite buried within the text And it's uh, very difficult, I think, to do both those things, but also really fascinating and maybe perhaps owes itself to a different form of storytelling. One that may have a certain presence in the moment, but then perform certain social historical duties kind of over time. The idea that a story like this will have a certain resonance over time as it's passed on, in this case in book form, than it will in the immediate act of reading it. And I'm assuming, you know, kind of oral histories, things have been passed down for thousands and thousands of years. These things need to be interesting as well, right? They need to be riveting and they need to hold people's attention. And so they do have that, that kind of dual way of being, I suppose. Yeah, that I
1: mean, that that in itself, that idea of, you know, the story performing a kind of function of carrying history and communicating morals and so on um that begins in that begins in oral culture it doesn't feel like it's a necessity for me in order for that to become modern or you know in in large quotation marks civilized that it needs to be written i felt like that remark in in the essay that we read was slightly oversimplified, perhaps.
2: Even within the text, it seems to acknowledge this. There's a point, I think, at the very beginning of the uh, the second section where the author of the this book, so the scribe, talks about how he's gathered all his neighbours and, and told them all about this amazing day he's had with this old man and the stories he's told and they all want to come the next day to hear it for themselves because, as he says, my retelling could not aspire to their own participation. And it you know, very clear there that, you know, this there's something that happens in the in the participatory nature of that kind of oral storytelling, oral history that is a very different thing to a book. And so I would definitely agree that it feels like that point in the in the essay it's slightly oversimplifies
1: yeah i mean i'd go as far as to say that the oral nature of the tale and, and oral culture in general is still valorized within the text exactly as you say the crowd that gathers on each subsequent day of this telling is larger and larger. And by the, by the final night, they can't get enough chairs for everyone to sit down. And, yeah. <laughs> you know, the house is sort of bursting with the, the, the crowd that has, has come to hear this. And also, you know, he compares the tale to the Agi Digbo, which is a drum as a musical instrument. And, commands us to dance so this is this is more than the sort of sedentary (laughs) activity of uh sitting down and and reading a text like you say it's it makes a lot of noise for a start but it's also participatory in a way that the book itself alone can't be so i'd say that although that idea of a transition from from oral to written culture is present it's, it's not without its complications i think but it is curious i mean we have to acknowledge it as it does constitute the first passing into the sort of textual realm of this language it's the first recorded literary work in that language so it literally is the, the transition from an oral to a written culture that we we almost watch taking place and that transition is dramatized within within the novel itself which i think is really curious I mean, in the, in the
2: moral element of the book, there's an awful lot about you know, what you should do for your country and your duty. And that's wrapped up in a certain kind of you know, your duty to your king and your duty to your... But there isn't so much, weirdly, I think, in, in that section about duty to the kind of like fidelity of your culture or duty to record or to preserve somehow, which is definitely what is happening here in the book and I wonder if that's something that takes place at a later date or is um, something much more present in the writers that come after Fugumar and say that they owe a debt to him but perhaps also perhaps something that is is interesting here in terms of how the book ends because perhaps in that respect what is seen of as the duty is something that now looking back on it is perhaps inflected with a certain colonial mindset I don't know I'm just thinking about this to jump from the first page to the last but the closing section which is kind of almost a manifesto or something and almost the the last line it said that we black people will never again be left behind in the world and you know I think a lot of people now would argue against the idea of people being left behind as if you know sort of were the slowest in a, a, a fair race or something. I don't know um, yeah because actually you could argue perhaps that this book itself has done an enormous duty preserve something and it it starts something at the same time I don't know there's a there's a certain fidelity there and a blossoming of of this culture into a new medium but that's never something that is spoken about explicitly
1: as far as what it does for some kind of national or, or ethnic identity I wonder how much that is actually strictly connected to the language in which it's written that article that we, we read, it starts with a discussion of Ngugi wa Thiongo and his book Decolonizing the Mind, a writer who has transitioned from writing in English and now writes in his native Kikuyu he's a Kenyan writer and i wonder what you thought about the relevance of those comments to what to what you're talking about so just for listeners Ngugiwa wa talks about the impossibility of the language of the colonizer carrying the consciousness of the colonized because of the foreign history and culture and the sort of viewpoint upon the world the window upon the world that that language necessarily carries within it makes it an incompetent vessel for indigenous experience perhaps Um, and he uses the example of the colonized child a colonial child who is educated in One language, perhaps English, but experiences the world outside of that educational environment through another. Lens and uh, there's a sort of irreparable fracture that that occurs there between those two viewpoints. I wondered how relevant that is to Fagunwa in this particular case, because he's quite maybe quite an interesting case in in that he's sort of using Yoruba as a as a vessel for foreign influences or Christianity more specifically. So the idea of duty for the black people becomes more complicated. Surely,
2: I feel that as an example like this. This book could have been written in English but it wasn't and it's incredibly important that it wasn't and then we are reading it in a translation into English and you know sitting here discussing the translation but that's a kind of necessary mediation on on two levels one of it obviously purely just a linguistic level but there's like a very obviously huge Christian elements to the book but equally there's so much about Yoruba culture and I think you said it at the very beginning that it's something that can make it slightly difficult if you, I think, try and delve too deep into it, if you don't know actually what some of these references are. I remember thinking that it was almost like reading Gulliver's Travels if you'd had absolutely no exposure to any kind of like Western history and so it's slightly different because it's very specifically satire but you wouldn't really know what exactly was going on. Or actually perhaps an <laughs> example from my own childhood. When I was Before a teenager, I don't know, probably like 12 or 13 or something, I'd outgrown the children's books that I had in the house, but there was no kind of young adult fiction in the house. And so for some reason, my dad gave me a copy of Animal Farm. And I read the whole thing and I thought it was a story about animals. Yeah. I really, you know, I just, that's what I thought it was about. And I knew that there was some kind of political machinations going on amongst the animals, but I certainly didn't think it had any wider. Yeah. And this is sort of what I feel like reading. You know, there there must be an awful lot going on here that we can't get. Yeah. And so I would definitely agree that there is, again, something more complicated than just saying that this is someone who's chosen Yoruba, instance of, yeah, to use that phrase, the, the kind of like decolonizing the mind. I think there are other elements in play, and that maybe this actually starts a process where something like that is possible or something like that can be attempted but yeah I think you are right in saying that there's uh, there is more more to it than just that but yeah the um, Christian elements of it I mean like everything in this book that it feels like that any any one particular element is never quite comes to the fore it's almost met by its opposite perhaps it mirrors slightly the the jewel that we have with the the hunter and um, the Humid Agbako and in this amazing initial fight between them where uh, every every spell that the narrator tries to cast affects both Agbako and himself uh, and they're locked in this kind of duel. It feels like there's a lot of that going on within the actual elements of the book itself where there's a either kind of like a syncretic version of christianity that's very very inflected with bits of yoruba culture or there's just these two elements existing side by side that constantly do battle never one coming to the fore that
1: is the really curious thing about it for me well not the curious thing but one of the most curious things is that throughout there's a coexistence of indigenous folklore and myths and oral culture alongside a very distinctly Christian god and at times a very distinctly Christian morality. You know, I was thinking of this particular moment. The hunter, Akara Ogun, is enslaved by a komid, who's described as a sort of cross between a fish and a man. You know, he's covered in fins and scales and, and has these enormous red eyes. You know, it's a creature very distinctly unlike anything that we find in the Christian tradition, perhaps. But it's not just that, the presence of herbal magic and the very sort of corporeal presence of the uh, supernatural. But when he's enslaved at this moment he prays he sort of realizes his error in in not having recognized the power of god essentially and i thought in the first reading that he was just referring to a christian god um very straightforwardly and i'm not entirely sure that's the case that he might be referring to a just an overarching godhead of sorts so he says ruler of skies owner of this day this matter is much beyond me help me now Help me, for I cannot do it by myself alone. O God, do assist me in this. Forbid it that I become meat for this creature. Forbid it that he use my skull for a bugle. Let me not perish in this forest. Forbid it that from this spot I become a voyager to heaven. Let me not die the death of a fowl. Forbid it that this man devour me as a cat devours mice. Let the masquerader worship the mask for as long as he pleases, he must return to render account to you. Let the follower of Sango serve and serve Sango, he must render account to you. Let the devotee of Oya bow to Oya, he must return in the end to you and render account. The Muslims worship you as Anabi, the Christians offer you every minute of their existence. I implore you to rescue me, I cannot alone save myself, God Almighty save me from my plight. So... There is a sense of a maybe a hierarchy of religious practice there, but not a um, not a denial of it at all. It seems like there's a, simultaneously the presence of a Muslim God of several figures there in that passage from Yoruba mythology and religion. So Sangor is an Orisha, a deity known for his anger, and he can cast violent thunderstorms and. Oya is one of his wives, an Orisha of winds, lightning, and death, and rebirth. It's not just what he mentions there, but for me, the fact that he doesn't demonstrate Christian virtues at this moment. So he's been trapped, and then just remembers that he hasn't thought about God. (laughs) You know, he's only pious when he particularly needs help at that moment. And the virtues he does demonstrate throughout the book seem to be the kind that we find in pagan epics. You know, we think of homer or something so he's got wit and cunning and trickery and great physical strength and so on these are the virtues that are upheld so i think i think it's never as simple as straightforwardly christianity i mean i, I don't know if you remember that passage and had feelings about it did you think of it as the christian god and 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 that's that basically or
2: no i i, I yeah i absolutely agree it certainly seemed like that perhaps even i guess what i was thinking when i read it was that it could be a kind of acknowledgement that maybe these religions are all the same essentially but there's a a question of who has the right terminology almost that you know there's a there's a difference there obviously as you say there is a hierarchy that christians have come closest because they've kind of understood the most but then it, it becomes a question of knowledge and enlightenment almost rather than being absolutely right and absolutely wrong yeah i feel like this allows some of the more syncretic parts of the book to make a lot more sense like elements where some of the comets yeah in fact only a few pages after this oh no sorry a little bit further on but where two two of the comets reveal themselves as kind of fallen angels and this part of yoruba religion is kind of completely overlaid onto Western Christianity as we understand it and say okay well of course these characters from Yoruba religion were cast out of heaven and Satan and now they're Satan's helpers and so the, the two things are kind of melded together and this makes total sense when you think of it as the difference between religions being one of one of terminology or one of I guess yeah having the right language or being closest to the truth but all of them are on the same spectrum or all of them are kind of facing the right direction that passage definitely opens up something and it's a very generous form of religious practice I think yeah is something that I think Marks the the book out perhaps that there's a certain generosity there towards all the all the characters and that absolutely whilst I would I would definitely agree that the narrator fits the mould of this kind of yeah classical hero. There's also the sections where two of the comments talk about how awful mankind are yeah, yeah yeah and that uh, you know uh, the the narrator has to acknowledge that of course they're they're right and that really you know humans are awful <laughs> and so and, and that in itself feels quite quite generous it's not it's not as simple as there's these evil supernatural beings and then there's the kind of like heroic human
1: figure yeah you do you even feel sorry for some of these chomids right mm. you know that they're sort of just going about their you know their daily lives in the forest yeah. and this this hunter has come to disturb them
2: oh yeah there's this section quite near the beginning where it talks about one of the um I think a, a nom perhaps or something, but he, he's speaking, says uh, death today, tomorrow disease, war today, confusion tomorrow, tears today, tomorrow sorrow. Such is the common pursuit of you children of the earth. And then says, we weep for you and drip at the nostrils. And this dripping of the nostrils is something that's like, hugely annoyed uh the narrator and then it kind of turned turned on its mm. head and realized yeah that, uh, exactly as you say that you know we end up actually feeling quite sorry for these supernatural entities because really they perhaps have a much better idea and even and even that fits when meets this um very diminutive self-described diminutive bog troll and he says to the narrator diminutive though i appear I pursue the task which the creator assigned to me. So, you know, it just fits in. It seems to be almost for say, way of saying, you know, these these things that are a part of like a Yoruba narrative, they don't actually disagree with anything yeah. that you might find in the Bible. You know, they don't exist there explicitly, but I guess saying now, okay, well, neither is something like a dinosaur. But the argument would be made that, okay, the point isn't God did make certain things and didn't make other things. The only argument that's really said is that God made everything for a purpose and here we are with a bog troll living in the crevices of the mahogany tree and says, yep, that's true, and I fulfil that role and, you know, Therefore, I'm perhaps better than humanity, which doesn't always fulfill its role. So it's an interesting about turn in that kind of religious... Because, yeah, I mean, a lot of this book definitely doesn't conform to um, what we would perceive as traditional Christian narrative or even morality. But what Fagunwa seems to be saying is, but why not? There's, There's no real reason for that.
1: Many hindrances did we encounter, but there is not time to tell you everything so I will mention just one more episode. One morning as we made our way along, I caught sight of a man who went by the name of Egbin. In fact, we began to smell him even before we set eyes on him. My good friends, since the day I was born into this world, I have never encountered such a disgusting object as this man. All his toes were pocked with the jigger and they were so numerous that they had cut through several of his toes and infested his legs from the soles to the knees, and many of them even came out of their own accord as he walked. The sores on his legs were numerous, and he covered them with broad leaves, for the smallest of them was at least the size of my palm. Many of them were left uncovered because these leaves could not fully cope with their size, and they oozed fluids and pus as he moved. Egbin never cleaned his anus when he excreted, and crusts of excrement from some three years back could be found at the entrance to his anus. When he rested, worms and piles emerged from his anus and sauntered all over his body, and he would pull them off with his hands. When he wanted to excrete, he never stopped in one spot, He voided as he walked and the feces stuck to his thighs and stuck to his legs. Every kind of boil and tumour lined the body of this man, and each one was bigger than my foot. They burst open on his body and he would gather the suppuration in his hand and lick it up. Egbin never bathed. It was taboo. The oozing from his eyes was like the vomit of a man who has eaten corn porridge. He stank worse than rotten meat and maggots filled his flesh. His hair was the skin of a toad, grime from eternities was plastered on it. Black he was as soap from palm oil. Earthworms, snakes, scorpions, and all manner of crawly creatures came out from his mouth when he spoke, and he would chew on them whenever he was hungry. The mucus never dried in Egbin's nostrils. This he used as water for cooking his food, and he drank it also as water. My friends, only this little do I recall about this man, and when he came upon us and began to laugh, exhibiting his rancid teeth to the world, we begged him kindly to depart, and after a while he went his way. I think one of the things that separates it as well, But I was quite interested in the, the body in the text, whereas in a very Christian narrative, in something like Bunyan's pilgrim's progress which i've read several several instances of people saying you know that was a a huge influence on this book whereas the gravitational center of something like that would be the soul here it seems very much to be the body yeah it's a sort of yeah absolutely very visceral blood and muscle and sinews kind of text, isn't it? Rather than something ethereal or spiritual, necessarily. Although that is a component, but from the very first sort of short tale that we learn about the, the hunter's parents, it's quite brutal, isn't it? I mean, we me just read this, this section. A couple of pages in, he's telling about his parents, and he says, "'I returned to the house just as my father "'was opening the door to my mother's room. "'And when he had opened the door and we had entered,' That moment when I caught sight of my mother, it was all I could do not to take flight. From her head down to her shoulders, she was human enough, but the rest of her was wholly antelope. She was all covered in blood and swarms of flies. My father touched her. She was dead and had begun to rot. Indeed, she was the antelope stealing out at night to feast in the field of Okra. And this is something... Well, first of all, you know, I was sort of hooked from that that moment. Personally, I was okay, wow, this is what we're dealing with. Um, also, it seems like in the text, I think, as I said right at the beginning, the body is this m- malleable thing. It can be contorted and deformed and metamorphosed, and it is throughout the course of the book. There's even this scene where um, the hunter is given the body of what seems like some kind of large flightless bird. His body is covered in feathers, and his belly becomes. 12 times distended and his head is 16 times its normal size but his neck is not made any bigger it's just stretched to a really long length so he can barely keep his head up I found that scene so uncomfortable I felt as I'd sort of been admonished to do by the writer I really put myself in his place at this moment it's very uncomfortable but you know the shapes in which these various figures appear and the creature all the creatures and characters the descriptions of them are one of the that's one of the great pleasures of this book I think but it does set it apart from a progress of the soul kind of novel
2: one of the things if not the thing that I enjoyed most about this book was yeah just the sheer visceral quality and I think it was what I was you know Earlier, when I said that this definitely isn't a fairy tale, it was perhaps forefront in my mind that at this point it kind of veers off uh, what you would expect of um, the. The writing is there's a certain anachronistic, older uh, feel to it, and then suddenly you get this incredibly visceral. But also, like, very scatological. Yeah. You know, it's there's a lot of excretion and rotting. and yeah, it's, I mean, it's absolutely great. <laughs> um, <Yeah. laughs> but that, there was something I was just suddenly thought about that uh, hadn't occurred to me at all. But I noticed in that section that you just described where the narrator is transformed into this, yeah, flightless bird, it talks clearly about how he can't feed himself, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, his, his arms haven't grown, so his arms are far too short for his body. Yeah and so he can't move the foot, and it's you know, this torturous attempt to try and eat anything. And then later on in the book, once again the narrator who's now returned to human form is buried up to his neck for attempting to avert the murder of a king by his subjects and the subjects get very annoyed and they bury him in sand and once again he's surrounded by all this food and they put a sign down that even says with your eyes behold this but your lips will not touch and it made me think quite a lot about uh, when you were just talking about this, this kind of like visceral and the the, the rot about this moment in European still life painting. Mm when you have, and I've forgotten the actual word for it, but you have these images of rotting fruit. Yeah. Uh, And I think, yeah, there's a huge thing in um, like Spanish tradition. And it's like a very Christian thing because whereas maybe some of the Dutch school of still life was to kind of show this opulence, there's a movement away from that and it shows that things of this earth are perishable and that really there's a kind of like higher spiritual life to aspire to. And perhaps there's a, almost like an element of that going on mm. here, but without without the obvious moralising, but definitely a, like a real focus on the malleability, but also the vulnerability of the body. It's kind of like uh, excretions and its uh, ability to, to die and to rot. And so I wonder if there's, I don't know if there's actually that link there. It just suddenly struck me as some um, something that might possibly exist but does feel like there's a like a christian tradition that this fits into and perhaps it's something that makes yeah like a syncretic position it's like a it's like a, a meeting point. The only bit of syncretic religion I've actually come across in person was in Mexico, in Chiapas State, there is pre Hispanic yeah, mix of kind of like pre Hispanic religion and Christianity. And there's a group of people who have kind of like taken on board things but really, really melded it towards existing beliefs. And for them, actually Jesus isn't a huge figure and Saint Sebastian is. Mm. And it's because the images of Saint Sebastian are a man covered in arrows, bleeding profusely. And that fit very clearly with cultures of bloodletting that existed in their religious practice. And so there was, again, that point of meeting. And so I wonder if maybe there's a a slightly similar point going on here where there's a point of entry or point of dialogue between these two cultural positions and that's why this takes such a big part of it which i think definitely happens in christianity as well that there's uh this meeting point with pre-christian pagan beliefs uh that you see in images of hell or
1: uh, i mean obviously if you go back historically in christian visual art and and in literature as well there usually is much more of a focus on the body and even a physical relationship with christ and so on you know i'm thinking of someone like Marjorie Kemp or something who has these visionary episodes of physically communing with Christ in in an almost sort of sexualized way. And, you know, obviously the visceral nature of certain episodes in in Dante's Inferno and things like that, obviously the idea of the mortification of the flesh, this is all very present in Christian culture too, but nowhere near to the same extent by... 1938 for sure uh, but I, that is a really curious way of looking at it i think i hadn't thought about it like that at all it's very interesting though by the way is it is it vanitas you were talking about ah uh, yes exactly yeah. Yeah, yeah yeah i had to look that up uh, but uh yeah. <laughs> shall I des- decide whether i'll pretend to have known it already uh, <laughs> or <laughs> or edit this out later um, <laughs> yeah.
2: But I was also thinking, do you think that um, in that respect you can kind of almost be seen as like an anti humanist novel in that sense? Even if it's not, maybe anti is the wrong word, but a very not humanist. In that it's really it's fascinating that it doesn't focus on this kind of spiritual idea of an intellect or a soul. It's extremely grounded in the physical in a way that I find incredibly compelling. And also the supernatural beings talk about how awful (laughs) humankind is but yet there is also this very from uh, Fogonois himself like this very generous all-encompassing idea where actually it's it doesn't feel so hierarchical that there's marriage the potential of marriages between humans and comets, and the only thing that links them all is that they are perhaps God's creation and that they have a purpose but that feels not nearly so anthropocentric or like a like a really interestingly not humanist in a way that perhaps has something to do with this being an African novel Uh, and so coming from a very different
1: cultural standpoint. And I wonder you know without opening up another sort of chapter what it says about the relationship with nature in particular rather than just this non-anthropocentric view because I wonder do we think of these creatures as very specifically supernatural or are they just dwellers in this forest that has sort of magical properties because human beings are also described also ascribed magical properties and spells and the, the, the supernatural just seems to exist as a given in all realms within within the text but then the the problem perhaps is that it doesn't seem like the hunter sort of learns very much from his, <laughs> from his exploits in this forest or from any of his encounters that should make him feel slightly shameful and in fact just does very well financially out of it.
2: Yeah, yeah, and earns a lot of money. Yeah. There was something for me that felt like, um, in that section in particular, the, at the end of the second journey, it felt almost... Like there was some similarity with a kind of evangelical, like a contemporary evangelical practice where it's totally okay to pray for a new car or pray for you know that these things will be given to you by god if you if you pray and so yeah it seemed funnily like a little bit like that that as you say that you know he sort of seems to remember god so when he's in a bit of a fix yeah but there's not this kind of like continuous dedicated practice but yet seemingly you know these messengers arrive from heaven and say oh but you are very important to god and he will look after you don't worry get you out of this latest scrape and that at the end of it you'll have a great big bag of gold or whatever it is that he finds so yeah it's some i mean i definitely agree that there's um, the end you know you have this weirdly again weirdly mediated third-hand moral lessons that come from the place that is nearest the hill of heaven is that what it is or the the bells of heaven that's what I'm trying to think of which seemed a kind of metaphor for its piousness but it's not exactly as you say it's not really something that comes out of the journey or the experience itself it's you know this knowledge that exists already that he goes to actually pick up as a as a like working document there's no learning or kind of like process of enlightenment or anything like that
1: Final question. How many sheds for The Forest of a Thousand Demons?
2: I think I might give it an eight because I don't think I'd ever give anything higher than a nine and we've spoken we've touched on it a bit the ending perhaps becomes a little bit too sermonizing in its kind of morality so yeah but a very very solid eight it's really absolutely amazing uh, what about you
1: oh that's uh, that's high praise rob yeah i think i think it's gonna get seven from me i did really enjoy it i found so much to to love about it and not least these these remarkable creatures that just populate every single page. And I think we're just in agreement about the, the the final section of the book, which perhaps is slightly less to my taste, but it doesn't diminish it too much, I think. I would really recommend this this book for people who maybe want to just try something completely different to to what they're accustomed to they might find quite a lot of surprises in here so yeah wonderful book we hope you've enjoyed this episode of sherd's podcast if you have any questions or comments about our conversation please write to us at shirtspodcast at gmail.com you can also follow us on instagram or twitter and if you'd like to support the show please leave us a review on itunes Thank you very much for listening and we'll see you next time when we'll be discussing Vernon Lee's Hauntings of 1890. Sheds Podcast is part of the Holdfast Network. Go to holdfastnetwork.com for more programs you may enjoy.